Blog Talk Radio. December 28, 2016 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. Welcome to everyone who's joining me here live at Blog Talk Radio. I see some people are doing the typical top of show reloading of the web page in order to to get the audio sorry you guys have to go through that uh this is the last show of 2016 and many people are saying good riddance i was mulling about some things to talk about at the end of 2016 this morning and trying to figure out what the perfect title was i've got a couple ideas about what has made 2016 so bad um Robert in the chat room says the audio is fine on iPhone and Safari. That's good to know that Apple is doing such a good job. It's excellent. Um, you know, what what has made 2016 so bad? If you actually go out there and Google, you know, 2016 is a terrible year and everything else, that you'll see a bunch of articles about this. That 2016 has just been a uniquely bad year. For me, my opinion of 2016 is incredibly skewed because I have had an incredibly personally challenging year. I guess we'll use challenging as as the euphemism. Uh, But I do think that a lot of people have had a very difficult year this year. I'd be interested to hear what you attribute the causes to. And you can call in and tell me or you can be over here in the Blog Talk Radio chat room. I've got a couple of ideas that I want to share with you about it. In particular, I want to talk about the cause of some of these celebrity deaths. Not David Bowie, who died of cancer, but we've got Prince, Carrie Fisher, and George Michael this week in particular that we can attribute to drugs. And I want to talk some about about drug addiction, um, but other things that have made this year particularly bad if you're interested in talking about what you think the causes are. Was 2016 a particularly bad year? Uh, Uniquely bad? Is it just one of many bad years that's on the way? Uh, Or is there something about it? Is there a curse of 2016? The number to call is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. Do I actually believe there is such thing as a mystical curse? No, I don't. So I use the word curse in the in the title, the curses of 2016, a little bit tongue in cheek. So, um, but I am interested to hear your uh, 
your view. Cobra Pilot in the chat room says, Trump won, so all the leftists think that the world has ended. Yeah. I mean, Obama's glorious reign is over. Yeah. All, all of that as well. There, some people do definitely believe that. I don't know if you can hear it. In my voice, I can definitely hear a little bit of hoarseness. I've got a bit of a cold. I woke up this morning actually fairly hoarse, and I was thinking, oh, it's exactly the way that I want to end my show 2016. Just, you know, just the very last little bit of icing on the 2016 cake is to have a horse year, a horse uh, voice. Did, didn't we say that 2015 was a bad year? Yeah, 2015 was a pretty hard year for me as well. Um, and somehow 2016 managed, I think, to top it, even though I had medical problems and everything else. Uh, there's other kinds of problems that can end up getting a, a little bit trickier. People are saying the sound is okay. Drink lemon ac- extract, I'm being told. I've actually got a cup of buttered coffee here sitting with me. It's nice, warm coffee that I'm, I'm holding here, and it's tasting good. I don't think my voice is going to get too bad this show. I'm, I'm hoping not. Of course, if you want to call in and talk to me and, and give my voice a rest, I'm, I won't object to that as well. But it's 760-888-5817. If you want to see all of the stories and other things that I plan to discuss today, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. Don'tletitgo.com is the place to find program notes for the show. And the story that we couldn't really avoid you know, talking about today is Kerry's speech, John Kerry's speech about Israel. Headline at the New York Times, Kerry rebukes Israel, calling settlements a threat to peace. Secretary of State John Kerry warned Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel on Wednesday that the Israeli government was undermining any hope of a two-state solution to its decades-long conflict with the Palestinians. Oh, sorry. Kerry, I just turned him off. I don't want to hear him. Um, Why the New York Times has him automatically start spewing? I I don't know. Don't do that. No auto audio. I don't want that from any website. Um, yeah, so they're, they're going to undermine any hope of a two-state solution to the decades-long conflict with the Palestinians. And he said the American vote in the United Nations last week was driven by an effort to save Israel from, quote, the most extreme elements, end quote, in its own government. Now, it happens to be that the, quote, extreme elements are the ones that have been voted into power and so that um, perhaps America is working against Israel's interests in this regard, but oh, no, no, no. Uh, Kerry in that little audio clip that started playing there was trying to say that, oh, you know, if you're a real friend, basically, you're not always going to do what that friend says that they want to do. Instead, you're going to do what you think is in the friend's best interest. And of course, what Kerry thinks is in Israel's best interest is to sacrifice the survival of Israel to the so-called Palestinians. And we've talked about this on my show for years now. And I've talked in past shows about how evil it is for people like Carrie to take as the baseline, the start of where you're supposed to be negotiating the so-called 1967 borders. That's what United States is trying to foist on Israel 
as the beginning of the bargaining process. And, you know, Israel is supposed to give up its own interests. Now, what was the problem with the the pre-1967 borders? The pre-1967 borders were borders that were untenable. This is why the war had to be fought, and this is why Israel had to secure additional territory for itself in order to ensure its survival. Because there it is in the Middle East, surrounded by hostile elements, people who want its destruction. It needs to have additional territory due to the unique geography of Israel. But, you know, screw that, says Carrie. Carrie says Israel should sacrifice in order for the so-called Palestinians, uh, who basically just want to sacrifice Israel to themselves, uh, so they can have their state, whatever in the world that means. Ben Shapiro, who's got a stomach much stronger than I, apparently watched Beach Live and live tweeted it. And at one point, he noted that, um, you know, John Kerry was equating Netanyahu with Hamas. And he was linking on Twitter to this quote that ABC News Politics had put up there that John Kerry had said that Netanyahu's coalition is, quote, the most right wing in the Israeli history with an agenda driven by the most extreme elements, end quote, right? So he's, Netanyahu's coalition is driven by extreme elements and, of course, therefore is bad. Um, now, think about this. You know, Ben Shapiro is saying, well, he's equating Netanyahu with Hamas. Is Shapiro also kind of glomming on to this idea that extremists are bad, extremists of all stripes are bad. I, I hope that Shapiro is not doing that. Shapiro is usually a lot wiser than that. And Shapiro said a lot of great things about Kerry's speech this morning. I, I urge you to go get Ben Shapiro's Twitter feed. And probably he's, you know, Shapiro is so prolific. He's probably already taken his great tweets and turned it into an article and put it out there that I haven't linked to yet. So you can go find his content there. Uh, but he he did some good analysis here. But, you know, this this idea that something is extreme, therefore it's bad, is obviously something that Kara was pushing. It might be something that Shapiro was half buying into there. I hope not. You know, the, the reason that Hamas is bad is not because it's extreme. The uh, reason Hamas is bad is because it is adopting anti-life ideas. It's pro-death. It doesn't matter extreme versus not extreme versus whatever, right? Um, that's that's really, really not the issue there. <laughs> Truth itself is extreme, says John Kenny in the, tra- in the chat room. Olto says, yeah, that is extremely true. What I've given you for your edification over in the program notes is a link to Ayn Rand's article as it appears online on the Ayn Rand campus, Extremism or the Art of Smearing. And it used to be that anybody who was thought to be so-called right-wing was said to be a fascist. And of course, you know, that still exists today that anytime someone is a defender of capitalism, they try to smear them as being a fascist of some kind. And they try to say, well, the two extremes are fascism and communism. Therefore, you take dictatorship as the unquestioned, you know, baseline. And then the only question is, well, which kind of dictatorship are you going to have, a right wing or a left wing? And of course, the left wing, the kumbaya communists, right? Those are the best dictators. So you might as well have them. 
have the Obamas of the world over the Hitlers of the world is, is their idea of the alternative. But of course, the real alternative is freedom, individual rights, laissez-faire capitalism, as we'll talk about later at a more fundamental level, selfishness, rational self-interest is the true alternative here. But instead, they want to say, okay, well, extreme, extreme, extreme. If Israel is extremely on board with its own survival, if it's an extremist about its own survival, then that in Carrie's mind is bad. If Israel refuses to sacrifice itself in order to achieve Carrie's dream of a so-called two-state solution, you know, he's he's got what three weeks, and he's crying because he has nothing to his name. In fact, he's got very negative things to his name. He's got the so-called Iran deal to his name, the deal by which we are funding terrorism, attacking Americans, right? That's Kerry's so-called legacy, and he knows it's toast. And, you know, he's trying to somehow cajole Israel into this deal. Um, I, I, You know, I included this article from the New York Times this morning. We'll talk to you a, a little bit about it. But it's uh, Israel postpones vote on new housing ahead of speech by John Kerry. And when you first look at this article, you see the headline, right, that they're postponing the vote on the new housing. I don't know if you remembered, but the, the first reaction was that they're going to go ahead and continue to build new housing in these areas in Jerusalem. They're just going to go right ahead and defy the U.N., which is what you would want Israel to do. You would want Israel to be defiantly in favor of its own survival and that part of its survival is to go ahead and plow on with these settlements, which they have the, the perfect right to uh, to put there. So you look at this and you say, okay, well, they postponed the vote on it. You know, um, is, isn't that terrible? Are they kowtowing, you know, to carry and stuff? As far as I can tell, they're just biding the time, right? They've got a few weeks and then Trump's going to be in office. Trump has appointed two uh, you know, United States envoy to Israel as uh, someone who is strongly in favor of the settlements. In fact, I think I read in one of these pieces that he helped to finance some of the settlements. So we know that we're going to have a pro-Israel government under Trump. And so Netanyahu is saying, well, all we need is for Kerry to try to, uh, you know, instigate further UN action against Israel in the three weeks remaining, we may as well just wait, postpone the votes about the settlements, et cetera. Okay, fine. I mean, I would rather see Netanyahu continue to defy, you know, he, he gives these great speeches and then he seems in action to kind of back off and disappoint. And I don't want to see that again. So you say, okay, well, is he just saying, okay, we can wait three weeks and everything will be cool. Or is he compromising to a certain extent? Is he, you know, sacrificing just a little bit. I hope not. Uh, one thing that's notable about this article is something that I've just, I've just kind of, you know, looked at this as a spectacle lately. This idea that Twitter is such a source of news and that analyzing tweets has become the job of journalists in the mainstream media like New York Times. So a significant chunk of this article that I've linked to for you guys, this Israel postpone the vote, is a Twitter exchange between Netanyahu. 
Mr. Trump, they say, who is named an advocate of settlements as an ambassador to Israel, opposed the Security Council resolution and expressed additional support for Israel's government on Twitter on Wednesday before Mr. Kerry's speech. This is a quote from Trump on Twitter. Quote, we cannot continue to let Israel be treated with such total disdain and disrespect, Mr. Trump wrote, continuing with, with a quote from Twitter. They used to have a great friend in the U.S., but not anymore. The beginning of the end was the horrible Iran deal, and now this, and he puts in paren, U.N., exclamation point. He says, stay strong, Israel. January 20th is fast approaching, end quote. Now, in case you wondered, he put that in between two tweets. There were two tweets that it took to achieve that. 140 characters is not that many. Netanyahu's response, as reported by New York Times, quote, President-elect Trump, thank you for your warm friendship and your clear-cut support for Israel, exclamation point, end quote. Uh, Then New York Times adds that he, Netanyahu, included an American flag and Israeli flag emoji at the end of the message. I've just, this idea that we've got the New York Times reporting about emojis used on Twitter routinely. This is just part of the daily news diet now. Face it, we've got the Twitter president, Trump, and he's going to be communicating, and this is part of news. Now, you could say, okay, this is transparency like we've never seen it before, right? We are seeing the actual correspondence between Trump and Netanyahu, and we're seeing it live in real time on Twitter, and now New York Times is reporting on it. But still, to me, just to absorb this, that this is the way news is happening, that it's on this medium Twitter that you and I are jumping on daily. By the way, follow me, Amy Peekoff, on Twitter. Um, That we're jumping on daily, and we're sharing our our ideas and our thoughts and stuff. Two tweets is a cheat, says Old Toad. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen him use two tweets to express any thought before. That's a, that's a big thought for Trump, right? That he's got it going between the two. Tw- uh, you know what? I have to admit, okay, I'm, I'm teasing Trump right now, but I have to admit something. It's, I feel like I'm an AA meeting or something. Um, I actually clicked like on a tweet from Trump today for the first time. And it was one of these pro Israeli tweets. I think it was the second one in the, in the two tweet series. Uh, that he had. So yeah, I'm teasing him, but yes, this is, uh, it's good with respect to Israel. You know, the idea that if Israel is extremely in favor of fighting for its own survival, that somehow it is bad is ridiculous. And, and to make, you know, extremes, you know, extremists in Israel and extremists in Hamas try to be the same. There was a great quote from Shapiro where there was a part of Kerry's speech where Kerry was equating Israel building bathrooms in Jerusalem with, you know, what Hamas was doing or something like that. And obviously there is just not even anything close to a similarity between these two. Israel has a legitimate right to exist. It is the freest state, the state that protects individual rights as opposed to everybody around them in the Middle East. 
and and the idea that you're somehow going to draw moral equivalence between extremists and their government who are just extremely pro-survival versus Hamas, which is extremely pro-death, is it, it's ridiculous. And it is. It's it's another form of this idea of altruism, sacrificing the good for the not good to label both as extremists. And this is the same thing that Rand is talking about in this extremism or the art of smearing everybody who is extreme, whether they're extreme, the truth and good and justice, or if they're extreme about death and destruction and nihilism, that somehow that is the same and but that both are worth condemnation is, is terrible. Incidentally, I always like, pointing this out whenever the topic of extremism comes up. If you look at Martin Luther King's letters from Birmingham jail, um, he talks in there about the issue of being labeled as an extremist. And he was labeled as an extremist. And at first he was very disturbed, you know, to be labeled this way. He didn't quite know what to make of it. And then he writes in there, and I'm, I'm just paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, sorry about that, but he says that he realized that he instead wanted to embrace this label of extremist. And he talks about, you know, wasn't Jesus an extremist for peace? And, you know, basically saying that if you are an extremist for the good, then that is good. The mere fact that something is extreme does not mean it's bad. And again, I don't know that Ben Shapiro, he's very smart, and this is Twitter, and he's live tweeting. I don't think he necessarily buys into the idea that all extremes are bad. Uh, But don't do it. Don't accept any part of this smear uh, by saying, okay, the extremists in the government over there. Um, I do have a call on the line. If you do call in and you do want to talk, then press 1. I did include an article over at the program notes. It's called New Zealand's Settler Problem. There's been a you know, kind of a disappointment this week, not just about America's role at the UN of abstaining from the vote, right, the vote against Israel, um, but also that it was New Zealand that introduced this resolution in the Security Council. And someone in New Zealand wrote this article, Leo Leibovitz, I guess is how you pronounce it. Uh, David Cohen, who I'm friends with on Facebook, shared this article. But the idea, the question that was asked there was that somehow is, is, I mean, excuse me, is, is New Zealand basically accusing Israel of being guilty of crimes that it itself is guilty of. And what the author of this article has in mind is New Zealand's relationship with its uh, native population in New Zealand. And, you know, what, I mean, what, what do you look at this as, right? You know, is it the idea that somehow it says, you know, the, the story of New Zealand's continuing illegal occupation of Maori lands is best told by its numbers, and it goes on with all these statistics. And and I don't know the whole history of this. But what I can gather is that, you know, agreements that New Zealand made with the Maoris there were probably driven by altruism, this idea that you're supposed to sacrifice yourself for 
other people. And so now if, if New Zealand is guilty of crimes, as the byline of this article says, it says that, you know, a colonialist state founded on the theft of Maori land blames Israel for its own crimes. That's the, the subhead here, right? Um, crimes. Right? Is it what was it crimes? Was it crime? Was it crimes only as considered according to agreements that were made pursuant to an altruist morality? This is what I'm guessing. And and the same idea is here, this idea that Israel is supposed to feel guilty for defending itself, for being steadfastly in favor of its own survival, refusing to sacrifice itself to the savages around it and you know, this idea that somehow Israel is to be condemned by the UN. The UN's got nothing better to do than condemn, you know, condemn Israel, who is fighting for their own survival, is ridiculous. Um, yeah, so I would say what's the root of both of these things, of New Zealand introducing the resolution and of New Zealand supposedly being guilty of crimes? It's It's the altruist morality there, the idea that you can define as a crime the stuff that it's doing. Um, it, it, it's just, it's just really sad that they choose to do this. And they did this, what, the day before the beginning of Hanukkah as well. Um, you know, the, the, the coalition of governments that were in favor of this resolution as well were extremely disappointing. You know, Israel is saying, by the way, I don't know if you've seen this in the news, Israel is saying that they have proof that United States behind the scenes helped to orchestrate this whole thing, that while supposedly on paper it's introduced by New Zealand, that United States has a role in it and that they are turning over this ironclad proof that they have of this to the Trump administration. And if this proof actually exists and we're going to see it come to light, that is going to be extremely damning of the Obama administration as if they couldn't be any worse by trotting Carrie out there, him giving this anti Netanyahu speech, you know, apparently he's been wanting to give this speech for a long time, but now because there's only three weeks left and Netanyahu has in effect taken the gloves off and said, no way, you know, they're going to go ahead and fight for their survival against the UN knowing that there's just three weeks until Trump is here. Then Carrie figures, well, you know, what has he got to lose? And he's going to go ahead and just really try to make Netanyahu look bad. But it has not succeeded at all. Uh, I think I've got Debbie here, and maybe she wants to talk about our friend John Kerry. Debbie, is this you? Hey, Amy. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I hope you had a good Christmas. Yes. And, uh, well, I'm not a big, you know, as I mentioned before, I didn't grow up celebrating Christmas and never really got in the habit of it. So to me, it's mostly just annoying. But um, yeah, I suppose that, uh, that it was pretty good given that. Um, But God, this sounds awful about Israel. I just can't, I can't get over this, the way that um, Israel keeps getting pounded on by all these um, like the UN and just the international community in general, but yeah. yet look at all the horrible acts of brutality that the Arab countries engage in, the Muslim countries. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just horrific things. Cutting people's heads off for being gay or stoning women to death for being raped, and 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 somehow that's not a problem. I just I 
can't wrap my mind around it. I truly cannot. No, no. And, you know, they, they were talking out there, you, basically Carrie was saying that you cannot have a Jewish state and a one-state solution. And, and, of course, you can. I mean, Israel has a tremendous track record of respecting the rights of all people within its borders, again, relative to all the countries that surround it there in the Middle East, right? Um, so, you know, this, this idea that you're going to sit there and can continue to condemn Israel, it is really the sacrifice of the good for the, the sake of, like I say, the, the, the savages surrounding. Uh, you know, Israel has not said, you know, they want to exterminate all of the Palestinians and stuff, but the, the yeah, so-called Palestinians exactly. have want have wanted to completely exterminate the state of Israel, as does ever you know the Iranians and everybody else around them. And you know, again, it, it, it's this whole issue of they are extremely steadfast in favor of their own survival, duh, um, and somehow that makes them bad. Uh, and they, they have to. I mean, if, if they are going to survive, they have to. You know, we are resting on our laurels a little bit over here in the United States on this so-called reputation that we are the world superpower and everything else. For how much longer, I don't know. We've really destroyed uh, – Obama has really destroyed our, our reputation on, on the world stage in the past eight years. But, um, you know, we can sit here and we don't have right on our borders all the time. Uh, people that are trying to destroy us imminently, but Israel does, right? So Israel actually has the reality check, making mm-hmm. it necessary for them to be extremely resolute about their own survival. And the the idea that they're supposed to be criticized for it, it's, it's crazy. It is. And, you know, just, it, it bothers me. It would bother me if any country were being treated that way, that unless it were just an evil country like Iran or, um, so, who truly deserves it. But, but Israel especially. I mean, I'll constantly be reading some new book about neuroscience or just any kind of um, new innovative field in science or technology, and, and so often they'll say, oh, well, they'll cite some research that was done at a university in Israel, done by people in Israel. I mean, they're just such extraordinary people. And um, what they accomplished technologically and and everything is just amazing to me and in science and that people like that could even be compared to the barbarians that they're fighting. It, it's, oh, it's just unspeakable. I can't, I can't stand it. Yeah. No, it, it, you know, the idea of equating them, you know, and he tries to say, Oh, there's never any excuse for terrorism and the blah, blah, blah. And then in the very next sentence, by trying to draw this moral equivalence between Hamas and the so-called right-wing extremists in Israel, <sighs> by doing that, he is giving fuel to, you know, these Islamic terrorists, the jihadists, who want to destroy Israel. Because he's saying, look, you know, you guys are no different from each other. Even if, you know, we're trying to say that terrorism is wrong, uh, no, you know, if, if you say, well, these two are morally equivalent, then then why would it be that Israel is saying, no, it's got this right to exist. It's refusing to sacrifice itself for the, the so-called Palestinians. Anyway, you know, this is this is just today's front page news. It is 
of course, a continuation of this last horrible blow of the year uh, that it, you know to our foreign policy, which is Obama, you know, directing us at the UN to abstain from the veto. Right? We, I mean, we could have vetoed this whole thing if we were truly the ally of Israel, we could have exercised our veto. But instead, Obama says, "No, go ahead and abstain." Go ahead and just deliver that last blow to everything that is good in the Middle East, which everything that's good in the Middle East is pretty much there in Israel. I guess there's some good elements in, in Egypt and, you know, in, in some opposition places elsewhere, but it's just so rare. Uh, you know, they, they are the beacon of freedom in the Middle East and, and the idea that we're going to be traipsing all over them and the UN is going to be targeting them in particular, it's, it's I mean, it doesn't even seem like it could be real. It's so unjust. I know. I, now, didn't you say that um, America is believed to have been behind the scenes orchestrating this? And right. So I guess that's probably why they would have not vetoed it. If Yeah, um, and, and, someone... and the, um, that, that's been talked about in a number of news articles, and it's even included in this second New York Times piece the one that says Israel postponed the vote. Let me go ahead and find that. Um, Let's see. Yeah, it says, uh, Mr. Netanyahu has accused President Obama and Mr. Kerry, who leave office in three weeks, of secretly orchestrating the, quote, shameful resolution, as Netanyahu calls it. I think it's shameful. Too bad New York Times couldn't leave that outside of quotes, right? Um, His aides, yeah. Well, uh, that's the word that Netanyahu used, but it it happens to be true. Uh, his, His aides say that they have, quote, ironclad information proving the purported plot and that they plan to turn it over to the administration of President-elect Donald J. Trump. So good to the New York Times for actually reporting that, that assertion by Netanyahu. Um, says Obama administration officials have strongly denied the accusation. Well, if they strongly deny it, of it's course. probably true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like in Atlas Shrugged, they reached the point where people would infer the news by what was being denied. Yes, <laughs> that's about it. Well, or maybe not everything is being denied, but if it's strongly denied, okay, then for sure, right? Yeah, exactly. <sighs> so, so do you know um, what are the practical implications of this? I mean, um, what could actually happen to Israel as a result? Well, I mean, what of course this does is it makes Israel look worse on the world stage. It makes us look worse because we are kowtowing to the interests of savages, essentially. You know, we are, you know, condoning their desire for a so-called two-state solution. Because as, as it's envisioned, right, by Kerry, the starting point, like I said, for the bargaining process to achieve the, the side-by-side states is the pre-1967 borders, which basically ensures an untenable state for Israel. So if the mm-hmm. so-called two-state solution actually comes to pass and Israel is supposed to accept anything less than the post-1967 borders, um, it's, a, it's, it's supposed to basically cut its own throat, right? Um, a two-state solution is really only a one-state solution in favor of the Arabs, right? Um, mm-hmm. as, far as, as far as I can tell, because, you know, obviously not – Arab is a race. Not all Arabs want, uh, you know, Israel to be exterminated. But 
the people who take Islam seriously in the Arab world all want Israel to be exterminated. And that's unfortunately way too many people with way too much power uh, among the so-called mm-hmm. Palestinians. Yeah. What Now, this just has a, a real strong element of collectivism in it, too, because Israel mm-hmm. isn't just some entity that can reshape itself to accommodate some other collective entity. I mean, there's people who live in these areas that would then be handed over to the Palestinians, right? I mean, people right. lose their prop- property, presumably, and what yes. are they going to do, sell it? I'm sure that the property value would, like, basically go to zero if it were now inhabited by some barbarian country. So it would just be like this massive, um, um, what's the word, expropriation yes. of people's property. Individual people's yeah. property. It's not. It's like that just doesn't really get a lot of attention when people talk about it. It's just like, oh, Israel's going to have to change its shape, like some kind of amoeba just like squirming into a different <laughs> little shape to account another for, to accommodate another amoeba. I mean, it's weird to me. Well, and and again, you know, it's dropping the whole context of why there was this war in '67. And why those pre-67 borders led to that war. It's that Israel cannot exist otherwise than by having additional territory beyond the pre-1967 borders. That's what became clear in 60s. And even now, right, there's these tunnels and all this kind of stuff, right? So they're, they're yeah. still facing attacks from without. But at least, you know, the post-1967 borders are defensible the pre were Mm -hmm. not defensible that's why there was this war so uh, they they want israel to commit suicide they want israel sacrifice but you're you're right about this collectivist idea too you know i was was talking about you know today what i was going to do for the show title and uh, there's basically two main things that i was kind of centering on as really ruining 2016 for so many people and one of them i i would title is altruism, uh, you know, sacrifice of uh, either yourself to others or others to yourself. And there's so many things that we could talk about, you know, like if if you talk about to the extent that there are actually bad elements among Trump supporters, they are people who are willing to sacrifice others to themselves, right? But, you know, another way to look at it is what you're bringing up to this issue of of collectivism, collectivism versus Mm -hmm. individualism. you know, if you want to get to the level of altruism, though, you say, okay, we'll sacrifice for the collective. Um, you know, there's some sort of a collective culture that we're going to try to preserve. And anybody who wants to somehow tweak or change that culture, whether it's in a way that violates rights or not, uh, you know, that the, the some of the worst elements of the pro-Trump supporters, they don't care whether the particular changes in the culture that one, people want to bring in are you know, rights violating or not, they think somehow they should be able to stop this, you know, through a sacrifice, a sacrifice of, of those people themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, so, you know, yeah, you could, you could, you know, classify it as collectivism, you classify it as, as altruism, but it's these fundamental ideas coming home to roost this year that yeah. have, have made it really bad. I mean, we could talk about the progressive education that led to a Donald Trump presidency, um, you know, and, and what was behind progressive education, this kind of altruist 
collectivist element, or you go even deeper to the epistemology of progressive education, mm-hmm. and then we could lose a lot of audience <laughs> on, on the show. Yeah. No, but you know, the, um, you know, this the, the yeah. idea of, of you know sacrificing for public school education is part of the thing that got us here too. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, speaking of Trump, has he commented, to your knowledge, on this issue and said maybe given an indication what he would do about it when he uh, th- kicks kicks Obama out of the White House? Oh, okay, so you were you were listening form. earlier when I was reading a little bit from this piece, right? So Trump has been tweeting about this. So he had said oh, we cannot, okay. we, yeah, we cannot continue. He had he had a two tweet you know, series this more. He actually devoted two okay. tweets to this, so it was a big deal, right? So uh, he, he says, we cannot, continue. <laughs> we, uh, we cannot continue Sorry, to let Israel be tweeted, uh, tweeted, ha We cannot continue to let Israel be tweeted. We cannot continue to let Israel be treated with such total disdain and disrespect. He says, they used to have a great friend in the U.S., but not anymore. He says the beginning of the end was the horrible Iran deal and now Paran UN, he says, exclamation point, stay strong, Israel. January 20th is fast approaching. Oh, well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. And, so, and so what I kind of, what I admitted to, what I admitted to, you can tell me whether this is a shameful thing that I admitted to or not. I, I actually uh-huh. click, I actually clicked like on a Donald Trump tweet for the first time this morning and it was that second tweet in the series oh, that I, I wouldn't talked be about. Ashamed. I wouldn't be ashamed of that. Not at all. That that's I would have liked it too if I had seen it. I mean I would have clicked like or whatever. Um, yeah. It was a first if, for if me. what he says is if what he says is good and yeah. re- reflects re- reflects something that shares our values, then that's good to condone it. You know, because like, so we'd like some more of that, please. You know, <laughs> yeah. More of that. I was, less, I was, I was very, very aware of that moment, though. I was thinking, what does it mean that I am clicking like on a Trump tweet? Oh no. Well, but, what does it okay. mean that the president-elect communicates with the world by means of Twitter? Right. <laughs> yes. That's, a, yes. that's a more disturbing question, I think. No, and normally no, they have press conferences. Yeah. So, and this this has been something that I've been remarking on in Facebook lately, which is tweets as news. What goes on <laughs> on Twitter is now top news stories routinely, and we just have to get used to it because this is what you know. Tweet analysis is something that is going to be like a journalistic specialty oh my God. <laughs> in journalism schools. Tweet analysis. Wow. And I, I don't uh, know. I, oh you know, how you teach tweet analysis in particular, you could say, okay, well, there's the Trump style of tweeting. And then what do you think of, you know, Netanyahu's style of tweeting? Because Netanyahu responded and he had a couple emojis in there. The New York Times told you oh. about the emojis that he included. So emojis. Oh this, my God. The, but, but, but so argument on the other side, it's very transparent. We are watching two world leaders communicate in real time in a public forum that we all participate in. Interesting, right? That's true. Yeah, it is. And, and you, you know, to get the real-time information, that is cool. And, uh, and the transparency and everything. Transparency yeah, so is I guess huge, 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 huge. They and they couldn't spontaneously interact like that via press conferences or press releases or whatever. It wouldn't work the same way. 
So um, maybe I'm dogging Twitter a little bit too much. It just, it just seems, uh, it just is a, is a shocking to my sensibilities, I guess, and to what I used to kind of expect of a way that a world leader interacts with the world. But just because it's different doesn't mean it's bad. So. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the, you know, the thing about Twitter, because it's got that 140 character limit, it can sometimes make people edit their thoughts in a way that creates ambiguity. And so <laughs> if you have the leader of supposedly the greatest country in the world, are we still a great, you know, how much has Obama destroyed us? What do we say about our status? But, you know, we have a, this great country and we have the leader of this great country out there communicating the ideas on Twitter is he going to be communicating them accurately? It's yeah. it, it's it's a legitimate question. Now, of course, here I am. I'm the one talking, and I'm the one who created this Ayn Rand bot, and I've got Ayn Rand quotations of 140 or fewer characters, and I'm throwing them out there all the time as if I am communicating things, and I do think I am communicating her ideas in that format. Uh, obviously, there are times where when you take 140 characters out of context, there can be some misunderstanding. And sometimes people do write back and they say, oh, gosh, you know, this is a little bit unclear here or there or whatever. I've removed sometimes some of the quotations if they seem to be unclear. But you can sometimes be perfectly clear in 140 or fewer characters as long as people keep in mind the context. I think, you know, there's an 800-word op-ed. You can't solve the world's problems in an 800-word op-ed either, People have to take into account the limitations of the of the medium. The the real question is, what can you do? Can you actually communicate a full idea in 140 characters? That's all. Yeah. Well, I suppose you can do more than one tweet in succession, and um, kind of I've seen people do that type of thing. Oh, I've also. seen people do seven. You know. Yeah. yeah. So there's that. But uh, well, I'm glad to hear that Trump uh, is is doing something good, saying good things about this. And um, maybe he'll surprise us and be a not terrible president or even a, some, do some good things. No, that would, that would be amazing. Now, you know, given all, everything that you have read about neuroplasticity and stuff, I don't know if you want to, mm-hmm. like, let me just talk for a bit and then maybe join me again or if you want to hang on the line or whatever, because – the other thing that I wanted to talk about that was at play in 2016 is drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because, you know, a lot of people have been talking about all of this great talent that we've lost this year. And of course this week, Carrie Fisher Carrie and, Fisher. Yeah. and George Michael as well to, you know, tremendous talents, Carrie Fisher, you know, kind of more near and dear to my heart than George Michael, but George Michael, extremely talented, and it's very mm-hmm. sad that, that he died as well. And, you know, everyone's been joking, you know, who's going to be the next one? And, you know, Betty White better not die in 2016. And somebody started a Kickstarter to try to prevent Betty White from dying. Somehow that, you know, 2016 is cursed. And, uh, you know, it's this okay, year of all these weird. Pe- yeah, yeah. So a friend of mine on Facebook posted this article. It's just from medium.com. Uh, 
And the headline is 2016 is not killing people. And the, um, the author is Judy Ann. I don't know if that's her full name. She must have a last name maybe, but she doesn't go by it. Uh, she says, I have a very unpopular opinion. It's not that 2016 is to blame for many of our favorite icons dying and falling ill at ages that are too young. It is drug and alcohol abuse. And mm-hmm. what she's saying is, and I, I talked about this briefly. I haven't, I haven't linked this article. I haven't included it in the program notes because it's just too depressing. Uh, life expectancy in U.S. has decreased in for the first time since 1993. The CDC mm-hmm. has reported this, well, and that, she's wondering whether <laughs> it's things like obesity, opioid abuse, and suicide a lot of which could be traced to addiction. It could be, but just it's worth noting that that statistic, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean quite what people take it to mean. It's average life expectancy at birth. So um, it takes, it just averages out everyone and, and, it, and it kind of encapsulates a lot of different lifestyle choices and, and everything just on average and, there's so much disparity in the way people live. It doesn't mean that, like, for instance, if I were to have a kid, that kid would have a shorter life to look forward to than I had. It, it, it doesn't mean that in, unless, the, you know, the kid, like, became a drug addict or became obese or something like that. But I guess the point is just that it doesn't mean that, like, if someone had so – the people in the younger generation are all going to have a truncated life. It just means that on average, people in the United – on average people in the United States, and that's an average of 350 million or something like that. Uh, the average person, sort of an amalgam of all the 350 million, is going to live some number of years. So it, it doesn't, it's not necessarily like a threat to any individual, I guess is my point. Right, right. I mean, obviously, like all statistics, you can't sit there and say, okay, well, therefore I have an X percent chance of whatever it is happening to me, you have to say that, you know, does, does the particular thing apply to you in the circumstance? Um, But, you know, what this author does point out is if you look at at least three of the deaths, notable deaths this year, Prince, George Michael, Carrie Fisher, that you see that drug abuse are at the heart of those things. George Michael, apparently in the last few weeks of his life, has been smoking crack cocaine again. Oh, God. So, again? Oh, man. I guess, I guess he had been addicted before. Um, past few horrible. years he's that been doing ravages it. ravages your body. Yeah. Yeah, he was, definitely... he, was, uh, he was arrested in 2008, said this article, for smoking crack cocaine. And then they said recently he was doing it again. Um, one friend said, quote, he spends all his day in a dark room with a pipe. Oh it's my addictive, God. That's yeah, horrible. it's his addictive personality. Everyone is scared to death about him. Uh, Carrie Fisher was also well known for drug and alcohol abuse, and she has often been referred to as "quote noted former cocaine user Carrie Fisher." I didn't realize that she had done a bunch of cocaine. I knew she was an addict of some kind. Um, yeah, but there, she there was a, a tweet from sober. Carrie Fisher. They they have a tweet, a picture of a tweet from Carrie Fisher. I never use my fingernails for drugs. I use dollars or tiny spoons like any other respectable former drug addict. Uh, 
<laughs> well, that's cute, but she was pretty. Fu- she was pretty funny. She had a kind of a maybe a dry or sardonic sense of humor. But I, my understanding is that she had been sober for quite some time. Although that doesn't mean. I mean, once the damage is done to your body, you can you can set off a time. Uh, uh, set off a time bomb that goes off decades later by abusing substances. Yeah. So. Yeah, what um, what they're saying here, and I, I didn't know all this, but you know, given I'll, I'll share a little bit of just personal knowledge in a in a bit. They say cocaine users have higher blood pressure, stiffer arteries, and thicker heart muscle walls, all which lead to heart attacks. Oh. So this author again, Anne writes, she says, uh, 2016 did not cause mysterious illnesses to befall our favorite artists. A, de- a disease from which I suffer and is as deadly as any cancer is killing my generation at an alarming rate, and no one wants to admit it. Uh, in yeah. Prince, you know, we 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 talked about in the past that Prince died of opioid abuse. Um, I also, you know, just incidentally, I did a show back at the end of September about a girl. She wasn't famous, but I happen to know her through a, a friend on mm-hmm. Facebook, um, and she died of opioid abuse in September uh, at the age of 30, a very tragic death. Uh, These are real problems. Um, You could say that opioid abuse has been made worse because of intervention by government done, you know, pursuant to altruist morality. And I I talked in, I I linked to the show, so those people who didn't see that September show, it's called Libertarians opioid something something I can't remember but I've got the link in the in the program notes at don't let it go.com um, in that show I talked about the fact that the FDA in our country has actually changed the formulation of the opioid drugs to make it harder to like crumble them up and melt them and inject them the way that the users want to and so then therefore what did they do they go get heroin and they would continue to use heroin even if it was heroin laced with meat tenderizer that would create these huge, horrible welts in their arm. People who are addicted will be self-destructive, right? And, and so th- this has been a huge problem. It, it's not some mysterious curse. There isn't, you know, I even saw when I was looking for the articles about how 2016 was a horrible year, at the very top and under so-called news, this should be fake news, right, was this mm-hmm. one about numerology. numerology. Numerologists have said that 2016, I guess numerically, is just a bad year. And that's why everything wow. is happening. No, it is happening due to ideas and also apparently the inability of this, you know, the professionals to get a handle on drug addiction. Um, and, you know, perhaps the FDA was well-meaning in not wanting to make it easy to crush these pills and melt them and do whatever they want to do them, but it, it it's apparently backfired and made it worse. People go to heroin mm-hmm. and then they they uh, they die. Yeah, at least the the, the pharmaceuticals are are produced to a certain standard of and they they don't contain like toxic uh, ad- additional uh, ingredients. So, um, well, I'm glad to hear that the the number 2016 is not going to kill me because that was something that I was really worried about. And uh, so the numerologist at the New York Times 
set that straight for me. <laughs> no, I don't, it wasn't the New York Times, but it was one of the uh, the, the top things that came up in news was oh, numerologists okay. talking about how 2016 was, was a bad year. Um, I've got, if people want to actually dive into some things about Carrie Fisher personally, um, there is a 2008 piece, I think from the Daily Mail, I can't remember the, the source, but Robert Mayhew shared it. It was a 2008 piece. It was an excerpt from the autobiography of Carrie Fisher, and it's hilarious, and she talks about uh, George Lucas and her experience working on um, you know, Star Wars. She also talks about how Cary Grant lectured her about drugs multiple times and super hey. funny, super funny lady, you know, self-deprecating as well, but also very self-possessed, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, she, she, she seemed to, to really know herself and be settled with, with where she was. There's some amazing quotes from Carrie Fisher going around and me in memes out there, things that you would like to adopt as, you know, sort of uh, standing orders for yourself out there. She definitely a very interesting lady. The connection that I have to her, you know, we talk about six degrees of separation. So there's a few degrees of separation between me and her. Um, My mother was married three times. So that's exciting. Um, Her third. Yeah. My mom's third husband, this guy, Rick, he had dealt and used cocaine and was also an alcoholic. And this was, you know, before I ever knew him, before he got together with my mom. Um, and during that time, he went to AA or NA, whichever he was going to, and met Carrie mm-hmm. Fisher. So he, wow. he met, well, and then they went out on a couple dates. Now, he didn't tell me very much about it. And actually, I wasn't even going to say anything about it because, you know, AA and NA is supposed to be confidential. And then I realized that she's been talking about that she went to AA out there. So it's not like people didn't know. And he didn't tell me he didn't tell me very much at all about going out with her. It wasn't like, he, you know, just some detail. And it, I think it was only a couple dates. And I think she lost interest in him. You know, he I think he would have been interested mm. in going on more dates with her, um, you know, found her you know, obviously interesting and, you know, she, she is very colorful and everything, but I think he would have been interested, but she just didn't pursue it herself. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I didn't realize that she had been involved in cocaine as well. And like I said, he had done some cocaine. Uh, the one thing he told me is like, if you're going to try any drugs out there, he says, don't try cocaine. He says, because it's really good. It's really awesome. It makes you feel great. He says, never try it. I never did. I took his advice, you know, as somebody who had been there. And as far as I know, he did, he never used cocaine at all the whole time that I knew him for years. And he had actually given Mm -hmm. it up years, you know, some years before he got together with my mother. But nonetheless, like you said, the damage is done right to the heart. Um, Oh, yeah. And he had the compounding factor that he was born with a congenital heart defect, some kind of a valve defect. Yeah. So it Mm. turns out this great guy, he was my stepdad. My mom had died of Lou Gehrig's disease in 95. And then the stepdad is still around in my life. And he was being great. And I was, I would meet him for like a brunch on Sunday and we'd talk and stuff. And it was just really nice to still have him around, even though my mom was gone. And then one Sunday morning in uh, spring of 97, I get this phone call 
that he had just dropped dead of a heart attack. He was the, yeah, like the night before he was over at a friend's place. They were, I guess, having hors d'oeuvres. They were going to have dinner. And he just, boom, dropped dead. They could never revive him. You know, Carrie Mm -hmm. Fisher, I guess they got a pulse, but she was on, uh, you know, life support probably the whole time. I don't think she ever got, became conscious again. He, they never even got a pulse back on him at all. I mean, he was just, he was just gone. And yeah, damage from cocaine. Now this is back in 97, you know, years ago, he was older than, than Fisher as as well. Um, But wow. Um, You know, this, the, the cost of drug addiction of people doing, and I mean, imagine he knew he had this heart defect and he's still using the cocaine. Wow. That's, I mean, that's, that's definitely not rational. It's like um, in the book, The Organized Mind, they talk a bit about, uh, just as an aside, I guess, I don't remember what the context was now, but they talked about a rat that had um, the ability to push a little lever that caused its brain to, its reward center to be stimulated in some way. Um, I don't know if it was by dopamine like cocaine does, but um, it it basically just sat there and pushed the lever until it died. Um, it couldn't, it wouldn't do anything else. It didn't want to eat. It didn't want to play around in its cage. Just nothing. It just pressed the lever until it died. That was, that was how that uh, went. So, I mean, it does have a very powerful. Um, right, right. Now, but here, here's, here's an interesting thing though. So, I heard that there's been two different types of studies with these rats, right? So one is they're in this very boring cage and the only thing that is mildly entertaining is that lever. And so they go ahead and they do that till they die, right? Then there is a different study. And I heard about this from a psychologist friend of mine. um, and, And she had said that there was this study in which the rats are given, um, you know, like a very entertaining place to live. There's activities and of course they're allowed to do mating and all sorts of things that are also mm-hmm. entertaining for, for animals, um, for humans as well. Um, but you know, the, 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 as, as much as a rat lives a full life, maybe there's mazes and st- you know, things to keep their mind going and their body going and stuff. Stimulation. So yeah. Yeah. So, so that there are other options of, you know, rat level intellectual and emotional stimulation, <laughs> whatever that what is for them. And yeah. suddenly, suddenly the little lever that gives them the drugs or whatever it is, mm. not so inter- not so not so attractive to them. And that they would sometimes go and use it and then most of the time would not. That they could actually engage in a moderate use of whatever it was that they would get by pushing that lever. Hi. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, Ayn Rand said that something like drug use is, is about an attempt to escape an unbearable state of consciousness and happy, confident people don't seek to get stoned. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's, um, that if, if people are not fulfilled in their lives, then they will turn to anything just to get relief and um, to experience some kind of pleasure, albeit fleeting. And uh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, we could we could have like a whole discussion about whether, you know, for instance, certain things like marijuana or alcohol, which are more, you know, kind of casual and not so mind altering and things like whether those are in the same category. But certainly these drugs that are done to a self-destructive mm. 
level, um, these drugs that are extremely habit forming, uh, yeah, you, yeah, that 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 would be a, a, a huge problem. Um, this idea of, of properly understanding what addiction is and getting a handle on it, though, you know, when you talk about the rats having a fulfilling life, and that if they do have, you know, again at the level that they can, they're equivalent of a fulfilling life. That somehow the drugs aren't as attractive to them. That you could also have that in the context of human beings. Now, what do we do to Certainly. drug addicts today? What do we do to drug addicts today? We incarcerate them, right? Yeah. Um, how many drugs? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the one thing that I thought Obama did right in these pardons. That you know, is the if you've got nonviolent drug offenders, which are obviously a lot of addicts out there, um, and you're going to let them out of prison and actually live productive lives, assuming at least they'll have that option available to them, I would mm-hmm. say that there's a much a much higher chance for survival. Um, but this is really what I wanted to get at with you, because there's an article that I read some time ago. A friend of mine, uh, Jeffrey Young, had shared it, and it's called The Addiction Habit. And mm-hmm. in, it's, a, it, it's quite a long piece, but in it, as I recall, I read it a while ago, they refer to neuroplasticity, among other things. And neuroplasticity is not something that I've known about except for in recent years, you know, as, I mean, I guess you sort of implicitly had an idea of it, but to have an, a scientific explanation of, of mm-hmm. what's going on with this and, and all the evidence that are in the books, that's, that's more recent. Um, in, in any event, it talks about addiction being a habit. And that it is a habit that can be broken, but of course you have to have the proper resources. And that today's AA programs and things like that do exactly the opposite, that it basically teaches you that you actually have no control over it um, and doesn't teach you to draw upon the resources that you already have in order to create new and positive habits to replace the old bad habits. Have have you read specifically in your reading about neuroplasticity about the habits of addiction? Um, a little bit. The the rat example is one case and then another case is one um where they talked about how they found some correlations between certain genetic factors and alcohol and specifically or alcohol or drug abuse and that there, there's been some correlate, measured correlations between the tendency to become addicted to substances and uh, a gene that basically affects the production of neurotransmitters which uh, can affect mood, like if you have a deficiency in them. And that there's this kind of general dysphoria and a lack of pleasure in life in general can happen with people who have this particular allele and therefore they're more likely to seek drugs. That's, that's the only thing I've really encountered. And it's, you know, it's nuanced. It's not like a one-to-one, like if you have this gene, you're going to be an addict or something. It's just something that's been correlated. So um, as far as actually changing the brain in the context of addiction, um, I haven't encountered anything that was really strongly suggestive that this is something that people can address with neuroplasticity. Um, I really just don't know anything about that. Uh, Anecdotally, I know someone close to me was in AA for some time, and then after 10 years or so, he went back to drinking, but just 
casually, and he hasn't had a problem with drinking since then. So, um, right, and, and there are, the the fact that there are people who can do that show you that it's not this disease over which you have no control. People do make choices to create new habits around these substances in their life, right? It appears that that can happen. Yeah, I just I wouldn't want to make any strong statements about uh, what possibilities do and don't exist. You know, free will. It's not infinite, but it does exist, and and so um, I don't know. Maybe it's, I'm, if if it if it can happen with one person, then it can happen with someone else. So it's, obviously, there's some extent to which it can be done. But right now, is, now now what I would suggest, um, I've got in the program notes at the blog at don'tletitgo.com a link to this article, and again, the article is titled. The addiction habit says addiction changes the brain, but it's not a disease that can be cured with medicine. In fact, it's learned like a habit. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. the idea is that it's the behavior that creates the change in the brain. And therefore, you need to engage in new behavior, a la neuroplasticity, in order to make the requisite changes to get out of this particular habit and that you can do it that Mm -hmm. way. Um, you know, that yes, a pattern of habit can make it more difficult to break the pattern, right? Because, the, you know, engaging in this habit creates certain changes in the brain, which themselves make it more of a challenge to yes. behave differently, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible. Um, mm-hmm. And and so the disease model is the one that says no, you know, it, you don't have any control over it via your habits. But now what we know is that instead you can change your habits. Um, mm-hmm. You know that you can actually go ahead and do this. Um, and I'm trying. I'm trying to get to the. So what what is the the alternative? They say uh, he says addicts voluntarily choose to remain addicted. If they don't quit, it's because they don't want to. That's an alternative to the disease model. Anyone who spent even a little time with someone struggling with addiction can see is there the shallowness of the view. He says the other contender is the idea that addiction develops. It is learned, which might make it similar to other detrimental behavior patterns like racism, religious extremism, blah blah. A little package deal here, right? Um, mm-hmm. Addiction might be hard to give up because it is so deeply learned or learned mm-hmm. in urgent circumstances, while alternative means for arranging one's life are not. So this article yeah. basically says addiction is learned in the context of environmental forces and that this view of it is now gaining momentum. There's a whole network of people who are promoting this model um, the example that I like to put out there, and God, I, I sure hope that the success of this man continues, is Robert Downey Jr. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he was addicted to drugs years ago. He had serious, serious problems. And in fact, he was forced to go into an AA program, and he was told he couldn't work for a certain period of time and everything else. And back in 2001, I wrote an op-ed piece, and I put a link to it in the program notes talking about how bad this was Um, you know the idea that you're going to expect him to change his habits without giving him access to the efficacy that he would get from doing his work yeah 
yeah. that that's a really unfair thing to expect of him. Now, he's a creative genius, so I guess he somehow got through it. But, you know, despite the fact that he was thrown into your traditional AA-type program, in fact, forced by the state to do that. Um, yeah, it how, is, and, and actually people in AA would say they don't want people in there that are forced to be there, you know, because you have to want to, to change. And, you know, that's, that's true regardless of what the model is. But, you know, it's kind of worth noting that like, AA is an example maybe of people taking control and changing their habits. They say that they're accepting they have no control over it, and in doing so they get together and do the work and they stay sober sometimes, often for the rest of their lives. <laughs> so what's doing that? Uh, you know, in, if, unless you want to resort to mysticism, then I think this is maybe you could look at it as an example, actually, of people changing their behavior. And it's just ironic that they're doing so by saying that they can't. Yeah, I mean, maybe what they need to do instead of saying, oh, well, they have no control and they have to release the control of the higher power. Maybe they just have to accept where they are in terms of their learned behavior and mm-hmm. that they have to accept the fact that it's probably really hard for them to perceive clearly what's in their own long-term self-interest at that point and yeah. that they and they need it, they need to agree to take others word for it at least for a short period of time until they can experience the efficacy that comes with creating new habits, right? So I mean, we could we could yeah. kind of take the language of AA and put it back in the language of changing your habits you know, using the science of neuroplasticity to your benefit. Yeah, and, and it makes sense. I mean, this concept of surrender, it, it makes sense to me. I've never had, an, like, an alcohol addiction or anything, although I have quit smoking. But I've dealt with other issues where, it, where change felt insurmountable, absolutely insurmountable. Like, there's just no way. This just feels too big. It doesn't feel possible. It doesn't feel possible. But then, it, and, and you just kind of, have to work at it for a really long time and then you can get to a point where you're like hey I I was able to do that but when you're in it and it's like you're at the bottom of this black hole and climbing out you can't even see the surface and and so this this idea of kind of surrendering to it it's it's like in a way that at that moment they kind of have no control over it it over their addiction but then they need to take the step you have to kind of surrender to that and then take the steps to um to, to, to take that control, but it's just very gradual. And um, so, I mean, I think that, that that might make sense. You know, I was just looking into some of the work of Dan Sullivan, because I don't know if you had seen this, but uh, Alex Epstein is planning on starting a podcast during the new year with Dan oh, good. Sullivan. And Sullivan teaches that basically what you want to do is you want to continually grow through your life and then of course growth can happen in very small steps and and this is the idea with changing any habit creating new habits small small steps just a little bit each day and then incrementally is going to add up uh, you know yes exactly to 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 the big changes at some point I want to have an actual expert about this on the show, but what I'm going to do now for people who are listening to the show is just refer you again to the article that I have in the program notes at don'tletitgo.com. Again, it's called The Addiction Habit, 
And it lays out this new understanding of addiction, which as far as I can tell is a much more empowering and correct way to look at the problem. Because if it was really the case that this was just a disease then you would not be able to change it by creating new habits in your life. And yet we see these counterexamples. Now, I'm knocking on wood or something around here because please, Robert Downey Jr., I mean, first of all, he may have done some irreparable damage to his body like so many of these other people. So there might be something that happens to him just due to past you know, damage. But as far as mm-hmm. I've seen, he's not. he is living a, a wonderful life. He is succeeding his career. He's still as talented as, as ever and as entertaining as ever. And, uh, you know, that he is a, he's a real success story. I know that in interviews, there's people who've been asking him about his past from the standpoint of, well, didn't you have this dark past? And then he obviously he doesn't want to talk to these people because they're just smearing him. <laughs> but it, it'd be interesting to kind of revisit his case and see if he could talk about more, you know, how he got out of it you know, how it is that he's been able to, to maintain success all these years. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it really is. It's really impressive that he's managed to do that. And, uh, yeah, I remember hearing a story. He, he walked away mid-interview, right, when oh, yeah. some reporter asked him about that when he wasn't there to talk about that, and he just got no, up no. walked out or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He he was there. He was there to promote a movie, and they wanted to say, "Aren't you this one with this horrible?" It's like, come on, this is years ago. He should get full credit for putting his life back on the right track the way he is. And, and I just chalk it up to the fact that he is a creative genius. That even though he was forced into these rehab programs that he didn't really necessarily want to go to, and he wasn't able to actually do work for a certain period of time that he could at least project in his mind that he was going to be able to do this work and how fulfilling it would be once he got out or something like that. Cause that must've helped carry him. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, so yes, one good thing that Obama has done is commute the sentences of and or pardon some of the nonviolent drug offenders, because let's give them a real chance to go out there and, develop new habits. I, you know, one of the things I talked about in that September show was an example of this one poor girl. She was imprisoned. Her mom actually let her be imprisoned, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, thinking, thinking that that was going to help the daughter, right? So she lets oh the daughter get imprisoned. Yeah. Opioid, heroin, whatever it was. And um, I know it was either opioid or heroin or both with this daughter. And so then she gets out of prison after serving her sentence, comes home, and within like two days is dead, dead oh. from an overdose of opioids. She goes out and just gets some more. And why? Because right. if, you're just, if you're just sitting there rotting in prison, you are not developing a full human life you know, according to your potential. And that's the only hope for these people is to give them a full range of, you know, activities and and pleasure that doesn't include drugs. Yeah. And once you've had a prison, once you've had a conviction, a lot of times having that on your record makes it very hard to get a job. No, exactly. To move forward with life. Yeah. I mean, what it, what it starts to do, you know, we always talk about with the libertarians, so-called libertarians that, 
you know, this idea of legalizing drugs isn't so important. And in fact, what we're seeing this year is that it may be very, very important to really get a handle on how to deal with this drug problem correctly, uh, because we don't want these. And a lot of times it is these very talented and creative people who are drawn into this. Um, mm-hmm. We don't we don't want to keep losing them because of the damage that the drugs and the drug addiction do, does to them. Yeah, there's no question that it does a lot of damage to people's lives and that the illegality of it exacerbates it. Force is always going to, you know, the initiation of force is always going to make things worse, never better. No, and and, and like I said, I was talking about that in that September show, the FDA coming in and forcing on the drug manufacturers a change in the formulation of the opioids only made the problem worse. They said they thought they were doing it to help, but instead, again, by initiating force, they were making the problem much worse than it was. And that's what you don't see in the government-endorsed documentaries. Um, So, Debbie, any other – so, you know, to me, yeah, these celebrities, yes, David Bowie died of cancer. We don't know if his body was also weakened by drugs and some of the things in his past either, but – We've mm-hmm. seen a few celebrities here where you can, you know, really attribute their deaths to the problems that they've had with drugs, the damage that drugs has done to their bodies, either in the past or, or imminently. Um, other causes of really bad, horrible things in 2016 besides that and bad ideas? Um, Obama's little last rampage of destruction, I think, counts. Yeah. And um, also... I'd say that the election was not exactly uplifting either. So, um, right. Yeah, I'd say those are those are some bad things about 2016 too. But we can again, we can take comfort in the fact that the number itself is not going to kill us. So um, we can appreciate the work of the numerologist in putting our minds at ease there. <laughs> no, definitely. Now. Um, you know, the the thing with the election, right, I would attribute all the horribleness about this election to bad ideas coming home to roost. And the real mm-hmm. question is, are we going to be able to get the right ideas out there in a significant enough way in order to stave off this trend? I've talked in previous past couple of years now, I've talked about this idea that we do have an acceleration in the right direction in terms of spreading objectivist ideas. You know, again, Alex Epstein has been really a mover and shaker on the forefront of this, and I'm excited to see him go out there and continue to cross-pollinate with some of the, you know, the so-called thought leaders in a, in a, in a success realm, right? This Dan Sullivan is a, a big mover and shaker amongst the entre- entrepreneurs. Um, I'm excited to see that collaboration I'm excited to see how, you, you know, your own Brooke has been traveling the world and, and lecturing on a, objectivism and that there are all kinds of signs, whether positive or negative, that the ideas are, are having the desired effect out there. So, there, you know, what do we do? We, we continue to, to plow on. We continue, of course, to live our lives. We also have to realize that the, the biggest thing that's going to affect our quality of lives in the future, too, is what we do with it. We still have quite a bit of freedom in order to enjoy our own lives. We may end up getting a little bit more even of that under Donald Trump. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Time will tell. 
Um, but do you have a particular goal for 2017 that you'd want to to share or um, talk about I, at all, Erna? I have some career goals. I mean, for one thing, I want to get uh, move make a move from my current company to another, and um, also I've been doing some more uh, some studies working on a professional certification in genetics and genomics. And then I think when I get done with that, I'm, I'm actually, my goal is to, to take on a, a second master's so that I can do while I'm working, you know, so I would do it part-time. But Stanford offers those um, by means of the, you can take all the classes online and stuff, so you're able to do it when you're working. And right. So that is my big goal is to get at least to the point where, I have applied for it and, and been accepted and then maybe uh, can start sometime in 17 or early 18. So mm-hmm. that's, that's my big goal. So mostly career goals is, is your focus for the coming year. Yeah. And education. Yeah. I'm going to, going to um, get a second master's that will help me with my career. I think that um, there's a lot of potential in the future for uh, computational bioinformatics that's kind of what I'm looking at moving into so um, yeah that's my how about you and 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 you're optimistic about the future enough to go ahead and put that investment into yourself you think that in terms of the the political scene that they're not going to start regulating the tech industry to such an extent that it's going to shut down the opportunities for you no I don't think so and, and okay um, a lot of those skills would be transferable if it did, but I uh, I think that the the need for for like um, for that kind of tech talent is in any, if anything going to increase. I don't uh, I don't see it as as something that's going to go away immediately. But you do you do any- have in the back of your mind that if everything goes to hell here or in California in particular because Jerry Brown somehow gets us you know, a succession movement or something <laughs> um, oh that, that, that you're ready to, to move and, and use your skills where they're valued. It, if I need to, you know, it hadn't really mm. occurred to me that that's imminently going to happen or that it necessarily will happen in my lifetime. I, um, but if I need to, you know, having more skills and, and uh, more experience will be something that will help me do that. For sure. Okay. Well, thank you, Debbie. I do wish you the best in in the year to come. And yeah, if everybody wants to come over to don'tletitgo.com and talk about any of what they think are the causes of 2016 being bad, how we can make 2016 better, are we looking for any hope whatsoever from support from the realm of politics? Or are we looking at only what we can create for ourselves in our own lives? Are we sort of retreating to that and just trying to spread the right ideas to the extent that we can? That's kind of where I'm at. I mean, you know, for me, I continue to do this show. I'm going to be doing this show uh, from now probably till the end of April, unfortunately only one day a week because I'm going to have a teaching schedule that's going to be – impinging on it to to too much of an extent. We have to be teaching three days a week, and then I'm going to do this one day a week. So I'm going to be here on Wednesdays, this time that I have right now, up to the end of April, and then I hope to expand again after that. 
Um, I've got writing goals as well, but I find it hard to do when I have so much heavy teaching schedule. So we're going to figure out when I'm going to to fit the writing in. That's that's my biggest goal is I want to get back to do some some writing. Uh, okay. I, I think, yeah, that's um, – I've got an editing project and a, a writing project both that I need to – to, to get on and that's been sort of put aside with all the problems this year. Um, but yeah, I would, I would definitely like to see less impact from these bad ideas and this drug addiction in this next year. But as the author of that piece says from medium, she says, yeah, this is going to continue. We're going to continue to see this generation that's plagued by addiction suffer premature deaths and that's that's just really sad it has nothing to do with 2016 it has to do with a problem so we need to help kind of i would say throw resources at the right places to to cure that problem sure surely motivated spreading the right ideas like spreading the right ideas about about addiction about everything else yeah exactly so we'll we'll be doing more of that on the show um debbie thanks thanks so much and thanks for joining me and thanks for calling in i've got a um, let you go now. Everybody, like I said, if you want to continue the discussion, go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com. I'm going to be seeing you one week from today, and maybe in that show we can talk more explicitly about New Year's resolutions, what your resolutions are personally, what you're going to try to do to make the best of 2017. What I say now for 2016 is good riddance, good riddance to all the effects all the numerous effects of drug addiction, not only on the people themselves, but on the people whose lives are affected uh, by their addiction and their premature deaths and everything else. Um, And good riddance to the horrible, a lot of it created by Obama effects of altruism. So everyone take care. I hope you have a great new year and I do look forward to talking to you in a more positive way about New Year's resolutions and such next week.